Well, Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, again, we, we recognize that your word truly is living and powerful, and that your word has the ability to change us from the inside out, that it helps us to be transformed by our minds being renewed, that, Lord, our thinking um, would be not based upon the worldly dictates, but upon the truth from your word. And so, Father, as we spend this time this morning in your word, Lord, just speak to us, speak to our hearts, speak to our minds, change us, Lord, uh, that we would bring glory to you, and that, Lord, we would live lives worthy of the calling wherein we are called, uh, that, Lord, our lives would be a light and a testimony in this uh, dark world. Lord, you've called us to shine as lights, and Lord, may we do that. Um, so Lord, just bless this time of study. Give us, Lord, I pray the, the humility to just receive from your spirit that which you have for us today. Uh, Lord, may we not be hardened in our hearts, but Lord, willing to hear. Uh, so we just give you this time now in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as I said, we are in the book of James chapter 3 now. It starts this way. It says, My brethren, be not many masters knowing that we shall receive the greater condemnation. Uh, well, straight away, we, we already mentioned that that phrase brethren occurs, I think, 15 times in the book. James uh, just is a very personal letter to those he saw as his family now. Again, we've mentioned, I'm not going to go through all the introduction, we've done that the last few weeks, but that he was in that family growing up with Jesus, one of Jesus' earthly brothers, not accepting Jesus at the time as the Messiah until afterwards when Jesus appeared to him after the resurrection but recognizing what family life's like and now calling Christians his brothers, recognizing that we really are truly part of a family. It's not just a social gathering. There's lots of social gatherings in the world, lots of groups that people have where they get together uh, and try and have some sort of camaraderie. But the church is not that. The church is not a social gathering. We don't do this just because we're bored and we like to mix and mingle with people. We do this because we're part of a family that are going to be united for eternity and that we have in common the greatest theme of all which is the relationship that each of us have with jesus christ and james is writing to us as members of a family we can't leave of this family we can't join we're kind of we are uh, engrafted in by god's grace uh we're born again into this family and it's such a, an incredible privilege that we each have. But there also is an onus upon us. You know, as a as part of a family, you, you know what it's like. We're all part of families and there's expectation that there's uh, roles that we each play within our family. And of course, the body of Christ is just such that. So this is the instruction that James now gives us regarding this family. Within the family, there are different roles, different responsibilities. And Paul makes those things very clear. But he says this, my brethren, be not many masters. Now that word, you can see there, the Greek is uh, didaskalos, um, probably mispronouncing that, but um, it's translated 40 times in the New Testament in reference to Jesus, translated typically as master, uh, sometimes as Lord. Um, but it's in reference to Jesus, that, that phrase is used 40 times. 10 times in the New Testament is translated as teacher, seven times as master in relation to others than Jesus. Uh, on one occasion, it's translated as doctor, uh, which is interesting because it's kind of all these ideas are in there. Uh, one of the uh, commentaries said this, in the New Testament, it's one who teaches concerning the things of God and the duties of man. Uh, another made the comment that it's one who is fitted to teach or thinks himself so. So th that last bit is quite interesting because James says, 
make sure if you're doing this, you're doing it because you've been called to do it. Don't just step up to this particular role because you fancy go at it. Um, James says, don't be uh, in a position of a teacher unless you really have no other choice. And he says, knowing that we shall receive the greater condemnation. Now, the real lesson here, or the message, is that there is going to be a stricter judgment on those who do teaching because their lifestyles must be in accord with that which they teach. Now, sadly, we've seen so much on Christian so-called TV and various other things of uh, people who profess things, but their lifestyle certainly doesn't go along with that. And it's a great uh, it's a great, great detriment to the body of Christ worldwide that these individuals would make the claim that they are you know, a teacher of the gospel or whatever, and then their lifestyle um, clearly denies uh, that they have a real relationship with Jesus. So the warning, again, don't just step into this role. A lot of, uh, the, I've got a number of books on being a pastor and the pastoral role. And, and Spurgeon, amongst others, all made the statement that don't do the role of, don't become a pastor, don't take on that role of being a teacher um, unless you have no other choice. You know, it's something that if God calls you to, it's a privilege, it's a delight, but at the same time, there's a great responsibility. And if you could do something else, then go and do it. And it's interesting, a number of the other pastors I know, particularly in Calvary Chapel, you know, they, they were heading for careers and all sorts of things. Pastor Sandy Adams from one of the Calvary Chapels in America, a wonderful man of God. Um, he was going to be a businessman and he was quite happy in that particular calling in a sense he recognized the lord was going to use him in that role until the lord made it very clear that actually had something else for him and it was to to pastor uh, a church a fellowship of believers which started off small and the lord's really blessed him through the years but it is one of those things that you need to be sure of your calling but actually the same applies regarding any calling that you have whatever the calling you have you need to make sure that it's of the lord and not just a good idea that you've come up with that's the first lesson that's there. And as you see, I've put that note there, you know, whatever I ask of you as a pastor, I'm actually duty bound before God to do the same. Uh, and I think it's a really important um, verse one of this chapter, because you'll see that the things we're going to go on and look at are actually, um, they're quite personal things um, that, uh, that we'll, we'll look at. Uh, as you read on the surface, it's easy just to skip over these things and think, yeah, I understand what it's saying. It's talking to talk about the tongue and what we say and, and so on. But actually, there's some quite cutting things that James brings to our attention here. Um, and I think the, the lesson is that, you know, actually, anything that I'm saying to you today, I'm not saying as if I've got these things nailed down and therefore I can just forget about it. No, no, I'm duty bound before God to make sure my life conforms to the things that we'll be sharing as we go through this, this session. So, so verse two carries on. For in many things we offend. Now, it's interesting because I think what James is saying there, you know, there are many ways that we offend each other and particularly by the things that we say. And then he goes on and says, if any man offend not in word, the same is a perfect man and able also to bridle the whole body. Now, as I said, James is going to say some hard things in this chapter. So be prepared to be offended or at the very least to be made uncomfortable because it does challenge our lives, the way we live our lives, the way we think about things. He says that effectively only a perfect man can speak to the heart without offending. And of course, that is exactly what the Lord is able to do. Of course, people, the, the, the non-Christians and non-believers are offended by the gospel because it challenges their pride. It challenges their claim to the right to themselves. But of course, in regard to believers, 
Well, the Holy Spirit can put his finger upon those things in our life that need attention without bringing offense. Because the problem is, if I say something to you, if I ask of something of you, we're all very quick to kind of turn those things around and, and say, well, uh, but do you do that? And, and, and we try and seek justification rather than accepting that actually this is instruction. It's very easy to put it back on somebody else. And it's true, I think, in any area of life. If somebody tries to give you instruction, you know, certainly if you, if you weren't ready for it, if you weren't anticipating they're about to do that, naturally you want to turn it around and almost justify your position that actually you are okay, you don't need to change. Uh, Oswald Chambers makes this comment in Mark Most Highest. He said, the Holy Spirit is the only one in the proper position to criticize. And he alone is able to show what is wrong without hurting and wounding. Now, I remember reading that many years ago, and it's kind of been a bit of a, uh, a mainstay in my thinking about dealing with problems, and particularly problems that may occur from time to time within the fellowship. There are times things need to be addressed. But I'm also very aware that the moment we interview, in, intervene on a human level, human to human, there's going to cause, there's going to be hurt, there's going to be problems. Now, there are occasions, and Paul certainly lists some, that it's right and it's proper for the sake of the health of the body to intervene. But the rest of the time, I believe the most important thing we can do in any situation is pray. And I've witnessed so many times situations where I could have waded in, and I know other pastors in this situation that they could have jumped in and dealt with a particular challenge or problem or issue. But they've held back and they've prayed and they've asked God to deal with it. And you know what? The Holy Spirit always will pick up those those things that, that we're not sure how to deal with and deal with it in a way where there's no hurt and it just brings unity, it brings peace, it brings healing. Um, so, you know, I think this is a great little lesson for each of us. If we feel there's issues or challenges or problems, certainly there is scriptural precedence. Matthew 18 is one example, and there's other occasions in scripture in Corinthians and so on, that we are called to say things and to intervene, to speak the truth in love. But as a first port of call, I'd always encourage you, before you do anything, pray. Seek wisdom and counsel from the Lord before you speak to another believer. James is going to go on now and build this uh, argument about our character. All right, And that's really the underlying thing here. Verse 3 says, Behold, we put bits in the horses' mouths uh, that they may obey us. And we turn about their whole body. He's speaking of these incredible uh, beasts, uh, effectively. I mean, you can see there just a couple of pictures of horses and their mouths. You know, a, a few weeks back, I went out with the girls. Uh, we went for a walk across a, a very muddy field and things. Then we walked through these amongst some, some, some highland cattle, which we probably shouldn't have done because they had big horns. And if they'd have come near us, I'm not sure how I would have coped. But, you know, it seemed a good idea at the time. But then we got uh, to, walking a little bit further away, and there was these two really lovely horses. And I say really lovely because they were lovely until they started getting close to us. And you realize just how big and powerful these things are. Uh, and standing next to a horse that's towering above you, patting on the nose, you're thinking, you know, this thing could just crush me if it wanted to. You know, the power they have in their legs and so on. And, you know, we were careful and gentle with them and tread very carefully. And eventually, the, 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 I think the, horse really, or the, the horses realized that we didn't have any food, so they kind of made off and went, went their own way. Um, and then we were able to escape. And my girls were saying, Daddy, please never take us out like that again. Um, but you just get the idea of just how incredible these creatures are. And yet... You put a small little bit in their mouths and you can tame them. You can steer them. You can ride them. You can take them wherever you want them to go. And this is the point that James is going to build on now. He says again, behold, we put bits in the horses' mouths that they may obey us. 
You know, these incredible creatures have no reason to obey us in that sense, but suddenly it puts us in a position where we're in control of them. And, it says, and we turn about their whole body. Now, I've already said James uses a number of these examples from nature and so on. Uh, and then the next one he's going to give us is this. Behold also the ships, which though they be so great, are driven of fierce winds. Uh, and yet they turn about with a very small helm, whithersoever the governor listed. I'm speaking of the small rudder. Now, of course, when James was writing this, we didn't have the kind of boats that we have today that are, are powered uh, not by wind, but by uh, engines and so on. But you get the idea. You, you see in the picture there, there's the size of the rudder compared to the size of the ship. It's phenomenal that a ship that size can be turned around and moved direction, change direction simply by the rudder. And you have, you know, the, the governor or the, the captain of the ship is able to steer it wherever he wants. So James is just getting us to think about these things, how something little can have such a big impact. Uh, and then he says, even so, so just as it is with the horses, just as it is with ships, even so the tongue is a little member and boasteth great things. You know, the tongue is only a very small part of the human body, not a very large uh, organ in that sense, uh, but both these great things. The things the tongue can do are phenomenal. You think of the power of speech, of words, of the things that, that have been changed and done through history, through speeches that have been given, through things that have been said. You know, it, it's not uh, an exaggeration to say that speeches have changed the course of wars uh, and, and incredible things have been accomplished by things that people have said. You think of people that have stood up and made great declarations, uh, human rights declarations, people like Martin Luther King and others, the, the words they've said uh, have had such a great impact. And, but then James says this, Behold, how great a matter a little fire kindleth. And the warning is going to be that we need to be so careful that this little thing that's trapped behind these bars in our mouth, behind our teeth, uh, there's a reason that God put it in a cage. Uh, and it's because it needs to be controlled. Now, I'm sure some of you, I've heard this week about the fire that broke out down in Wareham Forest. Uh, it's quite kind of close to my heart because um, when I was younger, uh, my mum and dad had a, a caravan on a campsite, just probably uh, less than a mile from this particular scene. Um, it's it just a devastating fire. And they're saying it could take 10 years or more for the woodland to recover and so on. Uh, there was questions originally as to what, what they thought the, the cause of the fire was. It spread over a huge, huge area of, uh, kind of the, the woodland area down in Wareham Forest. Uh, and they discovered that the cause of the fire was just a couple of small portable barbecues, that somebody had gone down there for the day. Now, they shouldn't have had barbecues in this area, but clearly they did. And obviously, it had just got out of control. It was a kind of a windy day. Uh, obviously, the fire just caught on uh, some dry uh, ground and just set it off. Now, I I'm convinced that the people that went down for that barbecue had no intention of causing a fire like that. I, I don't think there was anything intentional there. I don't think it was arson in that sense. It was just very irresponsible. But you see how something so small could cause something so big. You know, just a, a great little lesson that James is trying to teach us. Now, let me just ask you a question. How many times have you been wounded or how many times have you wounded others by what you have said? Now, one of the challenges here is sometimes you don't even know if you've wounded others by the things you said because you may not even be aware of it. You don't know how they've taken the things you've said. And this is one of the dangers and the problems with the tongue. You see, the tongue is far more powerful 
than we tend to think it is. This is something I've learned in my business life. When I've had to discipline people, there's been times in in a work setting where I've said things and I've thought in my head, they just don't get this. They're just not bothered because their demeanor didn't create the impression that they were in fear and trepidation of what I was saying and it was going to change the way they were behaving or whatever. And yet inside, actually, those things were going on. There was one particular example that really stuck with me with a lady who there was a particular issue and uh, we had to call her in for a, a disciplinary hearing. And I really didn't think that she uh, was particularly phased by this, just very, very blasé in her, in her demeanour and the way she responded. But later, after the event, she spoke to me and she actually t- confided to me that she was really, really upset by the whole thing. Not, not with the fact that it had happened. She recognised why it had to happen. Um, but the fact that the things that I'd said had had such a big impact on her. Uh, and at the time, it, I didn't see that. I didn't perceive that. You see, coming back to this whole idea of the time, there are two dangers that we see. Firstly, there's a rash word spoken without thought. That's one of the dangers, that we can just make a, a rash comment, a quick glib remark that we don't think is going to have any real impact. And yet it does have huge impact. You know, and the problem is we can never undo the damage caused once words have left our lips. There's all sorts of anecdotes that have been used over the years. Chuck Misley used to tell her an anecdote about this individual who was told to go and um, get a chicken and just kind of pluck feathers off the chicken and let them kind of fly away in the wind. Uh, and after a while, somebody came and said, right, I want you to go and pick up all the feathers now. And there was that kind of look of, well, how can I can't do that? They've blown away. They've gone anywhere. You know, well, that's exactly what words are like. Once they've gone, we can never retrieve them. We can't bring them back again. We're aware of this, of course, but it's just good to be reminded this is what James is doing. Proverbs 18.21 says this, Death and life are in the power of the tongue. We know kind of the, the idea of what James is saying. You know, I, I don't need to, to teach you that part. You get that. But sometimes we miss the real import of how important the tongue is. Death and life are in the power of the tongue. Do you think about that when you say things, when you're speaking to each other, even within a family relationship, the comments you make from uh, as a parent to your children, just little glib comments, when, when they annoy you and frustrate you, I mean, imagine hypothetically that that could happen. You know, the little comments, do you think about the impact that has on their lives? Or what about to your spouse? When you make a comment that you think was just a maybe a, a, a humorous comment, a humorous little anecdote, but you didn't think about the, the import, the way that they would take that. Or maybe when one of you riles the other one, and again, hypothetically imagine that could happen in a relationship, that, you know, one of you says something and it could really hurt the other one. Now, sometimes we, we get an indication that it's done damage because there's silence, sometimes for a week. Um, you know, but... A lot of the time you don't see the impact, the real danger those things do. Uh, And particularly with unbelievers, the way we speak, the way we conduct ourselves has a big impact. Now, the second danger uh, is when we speak words that are intended to wound. Okay. now, again, this is usually said in an attempt to justify ourselves. Somebody may challenge us and we'll we'll bark back because we don't like what they're saying. We don't like the implication. We're not just willing to be 
humble and accept that maybe what's being said is true or even if it's not do we need to respond in the way that we are but so often we respond in quite an aggressive manner or are able to respond in an aggressive manner again and it's normally out of a sense to try and justify ourselves why we're we're not wrong or why that particular statement or allegation isn't fair or isn't true or so on and so we can try and attack somebody verbally uh, in our response proverbs 18.6 says this, he says, a fool's lips enter into contention and his mouth calls for strokes. It's not implying, I don't believe, that we get into a physical fight. But in terms of the, the things we say, you know, a fool's lips enter into contention. They put us into a place where actually we didn't need to be. And his mouth calls for strokes. It makes it a far more difficult situation to recover from simply by the things we say. Proverbs twenty six twenty two says this: the words of a talebearer are as wounds, and they go down into the innermost parts of the belly. Now, I'm sure, it's truthfully, we've all been in a situation like this. We we wouldn't tend to think of ourselves as talebearers, but what is a talebearer? It's somebody who is telling a story to another person about another individual. So we're, we're including a third party, in a sense, in our own thoughts. And we're trying to justify ourselves by the things we say. We explain why this other person was wrong, why what they said wasn't fair, why we were right. It's all a pride thing. And it's, it's, it's so prevalent in society in the way that people act. The problem is it exists with us as well as even believers. Again, the words of a talebearer tale are as wounds, and notice that it's not a surface thing. They go down into the innermost parts of the belly. They cut to the heart, really, is what is being said here. You see, we don't always observe the outward effect that the tongue has on another. Okay, this is the problem. So if our words don't elicit the visible response that we've hoped for, we keep going with our words as if to mortally wound, in a sense, our oppressor and justify ourselves. Somebody says something we, we don't like or we feel is not fair... And we'll respond. But if we don't see that, uh, in a sense, obvious contrition on the other person's part, where they immediately go, oh, I'm really sorry to me to say that, then we'll, we'll often keep going. But we don't realise how powerful those words are. But we get an idea uh, of just how powerful words can be from what Jesus says. Jesus says, basically, that we should simply exercise the enormous power of the tongue by simply saying yes or no. He said this in Matthew 5.37, But let your word yes be yes, and your no be no. Anything more than this is from the evil one. You see, we should just simply be able to speak and use yeses and use nos. We don't have to reinforce that. Words themselves are extremely powerful. I mean, look, God created the heavens, the earth, and everything. He brought it into existence by speaking the words. Okay, when God created everything, it was the power of words that created everything. You, you see just how damaging words used in the wrong way can be. You see, the impact and damage to the soul of our words to others can be immeasurable. And we need particular believers to take note of what James is saying here and realize that this little thing, this, this tongue that's in our mouth can be so dangerous if not controlled. He says this, and the tongue is a fire. A world of iniquity. It's just very graphic and he's, he's painting his picture for us here. Uh, and says, so, so is the tongue among our members that it defiles the whole body. You see, the things you say color you as a person. 
It's not that, you know, people segregate it and say, well, that was just the mouth or tongue. You know, it, it's you. You are the person saying this. The tongue is just a vehicle in a sense. And it says, and saith uh, on fire the course of nature. And we spoke a minute ago about where in forest recently and the way that was set on fire. But it says that a tongue can set on fire the course of nature and is set on fire of hell. I really want to just make a mention of this because I want you to note the direction of influence here. We talked a little bit about this. We're going to come again on to it in a while. But I want you also to remember that hell is not the devil's home. We talked about this on Thursday evening in our Bible study. The devil doesn't live in hell. It's not saying that the the the, um, the tongue is his fire and it's it's set on fire by the devil. That's not what it says. It's set on fire by hell. It's very specific in the, the wording that James uses here. Um, see, again, the tongue is set on fire by hell. And really, that's speaking of the sin nature in us that is subject to wrath. Hell speaks about that place that God created as a place of permanent judgment and torment for the rebellion against him that began, of course, with Satan, and then, of course, through the fall with Adam and Eve, got transferred into the human race, this um, virus, in a sense, that's now pervaded all of humanity. There's this problem of sin that Jesus came to remedy. But that is the root of the problem. It comes back to exactly what James was saying in the opening chapter. The problem, we can't blame Satan for the things we say. Okay, of course, Satan is very much at work in the world and uh, working behind the, the, the curtain in a sense, uh, kind of the whole Wizard of Oz type analogy, but, you know, pulling the strings behind the curtain to make everything what it is today. He's the God of this world. Again, we talked about that on Thursday. But the, the, the tongue is actually set on fire by that sin nature within us. That's the real root of the problem. And then we read this. Uh, For every kind of beasts and of birds and of serpents and of things in the sea is tamed. And has been tamed of mankind. And you can see some of the pictures there of just incredible creatures that we've been able to tame. We've been able to bring under control. But then James goes on and says this. But the tongue can no man tame. It is an unruly evil full of deadly poison. Now, probably before this morning, if we don't ask you just, you know, what does James say in chapter three? Oh, be careful what you say, what you, you know, which is true. But we probably wouldn't have gone to the extent that James is actually saying it. He's saying the tongue is actually full of poison. It can be deadly to other people and even to our own souls. You see, we can tame lions, bears, eagles, snakes, as we saw in those pictures a moment ago. You know, and we can even control whales and we can swim with sharks and so on. But no outward influence can tame or control your tongue. The control of your tongue must come from within. And it will depend on the source of flow into our heart and mind, which in turn would determine our character. Let me just give you this definition by Leonard Ravenhill, uh, a pastor and a friend of the late Keith Green, uh, made this comment. He said, character is what God knows you are. Reputation is what men think you are. I love that. Let me read that again. Character is what God knows you are. Reputation is what men think you are. We spend a lot of time on our reputation. That's the way men perceive us. But really, we should be spending more time on our character. That's who we really are. That's the real us that God gets to see. And of course, our tongue is going to respond in regard to where this source of flow comes from, whether we're being influenced by the world or whether we're being influenced by godly things. 
Now, again, just highlight here, James is effectively adopting the mindset that Jesus really uses in the Beatitudes, where he says the tongue no man can tame. All right. In other words, it's a lost cause. You can't do this is what he's really saying. Now, the question has to be asked, well, if, if we can't do it, why even try? Why are we having this conversation? Why are we reading this chapter? Well, let me just say again, you can't go to a physician for help for the problem of the tongue and the things we say, because the tongue is not controlled by the physical, but by the spiritual. Again, what is impossible for men is possible with God. And that's what Jesus himself said in Luke 18, 27. He goes on and says, therewith, bless we God, even the father and therewith curse we men, which are made after the similitude or the likeness of God. You know, with our tongue, we, we praise God. We sing praises and we worship him and so on. We bless God and even the Father. And, and therewith we curse we men who have actually been made in the likeness of God. And James is saying, think about the way you use your tongue, the things you say. Verse 10, out of the same mouth proceed blessing and cursing my brethren these things ought not to be so now james is going to go on and give us some examples of this to try and drive this home for us but saying you know that, that our mouths shouldn't be used for glorifying god and then cursing that which he's created in the next breath you know there is a, a perversity and a double standard if we produced mixed fruit originating from two different sources but then coming from the same outlet. This is what is going to be said in these following verses. You know, so absolutely we should be considering the tongue, but also in this, there I believe is the implication implied that we also need to be considering the heart. See, is your heart showing affection for the things of the world and at the same time showing genuine affection for God? You know, because that's the same kind of dichotomy that we've got going on here, that our heart may be pulled by the world, during the week but then we get to the weekend we get to sunday and then god is our focus it's not right it shouldn't be that way this is really what james is saying this is all about our character i who god knows us really truly to be uh, this whole chapter is really looking at that you know and it cries of that need to decide back in exodus 32 26 the situation with the golden calf and all that you know moses says to to the people who those who are listening and particularly the levites who responded that cry who is on the lord's side well that's the challenge that's going out in this chapter you know with your tongue with your character with your attitude with your heart with your mind are you on the lord's side is that flow into your life coming from god or is it coming from the world mark 7 verse 20 23 jesus said that which cometh out of the man that defiles the man for from within out of the heart of men proceed evil thoughts adulteries fornications murders thefts covetousness wickedness deceit lasciviousness an evil eye blasphemy pride foolishness all these evil things come from within and defile the man. And it brings us back to that uh, example we looked at uh, a week or two ago. Uh, again, sometimes commentators refer to this as kind of biblical psychology, but understanding our makeup, that we are body, soul and spirit. The soul is us. It's who we really are. Okay, you know, the body is simply the container that we dwell in for now. It's the tent, it's a tabernacle. And Paul talks about us putting off this tabernacle, putting off this tent at one point. We're going to get a new body. 
eventually um, but the soul our heart and our mind is who we are the heart again that emotional part of us the mind the intellectual part and they work together to shape our thoughts our decisions and that which we do but it's fed from either of one or two directions either from the body i.e the world our natural lusts and inclinations and desires or it's fed from that god consciousness from reading god's word from fellowshipping with each other from the breaking of bread communion in other words reminding ourselves repeatedly of what christ did for us which speaks to our heart and mind the fact that we are sinners that we need a savior we need to be transformed and of course, then praying as well, that constant relationship, that communion that we have with God, where we're continually going to God in prayer. Those four things, again, that are in, listed in Acts chapter two for us, the bedrock of the Christian life. So we're influenced by these two things. But the problem is when we think of the tongue, the tongue, of course, is part of the body. It's influenced by the world anyway. And sometimes things we say barely kind of touch our heart and mind. They, the ideas come straight from the world and immediately our tongue says something hastily, rashly, or even uh, out of uh, kind of a sense of wanting to justify ourselves, as we said a while ago. And we can say things so quickly without stopping to really consider. The, the problem is, again, the flow comes from the world we need to change it so that the flow comes from god from godly things and this is why it's so important to surround ourselves with things of god as i said before i'm not condemning uh, non-christian music and if you listen to the radio i'm not saying that's a bad thing but i'm also saying it's not going to be helpful but if you listen to worship music to christian music uh listen to the things that will feed your spirit that will draw you and your heart and mind into a, a godly place. Uh, that is what you need. Spending time with other believers, fellowshipping, uh, encouraging each other, reading God's word. As I've said a number of times over the last week or two, you know, let the last thing you look at before you shut your eyes at night be God's word. Even if you just pick up your Bible and you read a verse before you go to sleep, let the last thing, so that through the night, that's in your mind, the last thing of the night. And really the first thing you should be doing in the morning is wait and acknowledging the Holy Spirit is there with you for the start of that new day that that new day is another day where we get to walk with the Lord we should be surrounding ourselves with godly things and godly influences James goes on and says uh, does a fountain send forth at the same place sweet water and bitter okay in other words the, the flow here you see that water coming out of that rock it's beautiful pure clear water is good but you're not going to get the bitter water coming from the same place. There's two directions of flow, but they don't come both from the same point. This is the point that James is really trying to make here. And then he says, can the fig tree, there's figs there you can see on the left of the screen, my brethren bear olive berries. You can see the olive branch on the right there. They're two totally different things, different fruits. The fig cannot bear olives. Why? Because it's not connected to that root that will bring forth that fruit okay and this is either a vine bring forth figs no so so can no, uh, so so can no fountain yield both salt water and fresh it's speaking about the source where is the source in your life what is the source that is feeding your heart and mind because that will change not just the things you say with the things you, you speak in the, the, the tongue but it can it will change your heart your actual very character again you only produce the fruit according to what you are inside so again really the exodus 32 uh reference determine today what you are going to produce 
by determining what you are. All right. So if we are followers of Jesus Christ, if we have been born again because of the blood of Jesus that was shed for us, if we've received the Holy Spirit, well, that's what we are. We need to be connected to God in such a way that we bring forth fruit that is glorifying to him. We've been encouraged already. We've mentioned, and James will build on this as we go further on, uh, about the whole issue of works. We've been created to produce those good works, not produce the things of the world that so naturally and easily we could produce, but we've been created in Christ Jesus to bring forth those fruits that are for righteousness. James says, who is a wise man and endued with knowledge among you? It's just this question to all of us this morning. You know, do you consider yourself wise? Do you think you've attained any degree of knowledge in a spiritual sense? And it says, let him show out of a good conversation. Now, that word conversation, the King James, is speaking of character, of lifestyle. Show out of a good conversation his works with meekness of wisdom. In other words, the things that you do in your life should be easy, to, or people should easily be able to connect it to the source. So it tells us very quickly where the source is in our lives. Now, again, really, I, I think we could paraphrase this and say, you know, do you understand that we must put an end to this inner war? And if we do understand that, your life must show it in love, in peace, in patience, in all of these things. Again, not looking for mastery. That's the word the King James uses a number of times, but being content. What do I mean by that? Well, very often we like to be in control we don't like to to be not in control of any particular situation um you know and we want to so we sometimes use our tongue as a way of getting one step ahead it's the uh, the swimming pool analogy i've used this a number of times you know imagine two or three people in a swimming pool and you all go to get out at the same time you know there's a couple of ways you can get out of a swimming pool one of them is helping each other if you've not, if it's a kind of a high lip to the edge of the pool the other one is going to put your hand on the person's head next to you and use them to get some leverage well that's kind of the world's way of doing things that's that kind of looking for mastery to be in control looking out for yourself well actually that's not the way we should be as believers and actually if we've got the right relationship with god we don't need to assert ourselves we don't need to justify ourselves i think it was francis assisi uh that made the the comment uh, lord forgive me for the sin of always trying to vindicate myself and I think there's some real wisdom in that comment that so often we try to vindicate ourselves, and if necessary, we'll put others down to do it. And of course, the tongue becomes a great tool that we use in order to do that. But actually, if we're content, that's how we should be. And Paul speaks about this, this being content. You know, we have nothing to prove. Let me remind you again that you have been bought by the blood of Christ. You have been made a, a brother in a sense, with Jesus. This is what John tells us in First John, that we've been brought into this family. We've been called the sons of God, given the right of the firstborn. We've been promised this inheritance. Now, just think about the world. You know, what has the world got that you need to prove you have any of it? You know, the relationship we have, that which we've been promised in Christ is so much better, so much greater. You already have the highest standing that any human being can attain to. And that is being called a son of God, the place of the firstborn, you are loved by God himself and he loved you so much, he sent his own son for you that we may have this relationship. So we don't need to strive for this 
a sense of purpose or belonging or authority or position or whatever uh, from the world. Psalm 12 kind of really sums a lot of this up. It says, help, Lord. What a great way to start a prayer. Help, Lord, for the godly man ceaseth, for the faithful fail from among the children of men. And it tells us exactly what we, we know in our own experience to be true. They speak, again, this is the tongue, vanity. Everyone with his neighbor, with flattering lips, and with a double heart do they speak. In other words, what they're saying is purely for their own ends, to get what they want, what they perceive they need to put them one step ahead. The Lord shall cut off all flattering lips and the tongue that speaks proud things. Why is it the tongue speaks? That the tongue almost always adopts that default position of trying to justify you, of trying to prove why you're right and so on. Who have said with our tongue, we will prevail. There you are. It's, it's there in print. Our lips are our own. Who is Lord over us? Comes back to that uh, often repeated thing by Oswald Chambers about knowing or, or, or who has the right to ourselves. And, and Oswald makes the point many, many times in his writings uh, or the things that he spoke that his wife wrote down afterwards after he died, that the Lord is constantly challenging us as to who has the right to ourselves. And really, the only right we have is the right to give up the rights to ourselves. In other words, the Lord should be on the throne of our hearts. But so often, we are on the throne of our hearts. That's what this is all about. That's what the tongue is is constantly clamoring for, to put us in control, to put us in a position uh, where we are better or, or seemingly uh, above others, uh, to give us some sort of edge or advantage. I've said, also a number of times, you know, I think in a very simplistic form, you can understand everything if you understand two thrones, two thrones. One throne is the throne of Israel, the throne of David. You'll understand the world, you'll understand politics, you'll understand history if you understand the struggle for the throne of David. And the fact that Jesus will ultimately sit on the throne of David and all the political intrigues and challenges and wars and all those things have gone on. They all make sense when you understand Israel and the throne of Israel and that Jesus will rule and reign on that throne. The other throne you need to understand is the throne of your own heart. And this is what this challenge is all about. Who is sitting on the throne of your heart this morning? Is it yourself? Are you being fed by those worldly influences or is it Jesus Christ? Is he Lord of your life? And we call him Lord, we pray Lord when we pray, but is he really the Lord over our lives? <clears throat> Verse 14 says, but if you have bitter envying and strife in your hearts, glory not and lie not against the truth. It's another way of James saying, don't deceive yourself. You know, if you've got that bitter envy, and I'll explain what I think James means by that in a moment, and that strife in your hearts, it's not a time to rejoice. It's not a time to start saying, oh, we've got this sorted out. This is great. We're doing really well. He said, don't, don't deceive yourself. Let me paraphrase. I think this is what we're kind of seeing James trying to allude to here. It's really don't start rejoicing or pretending that things are good with you if there is still that inner turmoil because you're constantly looking over your shoulder at the things that you've left behind. Okay, the idea of bitterness is people that have come to that place now. We're walking with the Lord, and yet we want to look over our shoulder and see the things that maybe we've left behind that kind of we still like to have a bit of. And this is what James, is, I believe, is saying. You know, if you have bitter envy, if you're looking at those things, even in your own life, or you're looking at others, the things that the people in the world have, think, I want that. 
Yeah, this is, it all comes down to the direction of flow, what's most important in our lives. Again, bitter envy and strife in your hearts. And how many people, even this morning, even as a group of believers this morning, how many of us have strife in our hearts because of those challenges that are presented by those lusts that come from within? It's just don't glory. If you're in that position, don't glory. It's not a time to start rejoicing. Uh, and don't lie. Don't deceive yourself. And my last bullet point there, you know, consider Lot's wife. You know, she craved for the things that she'd left. You know, and it was not time for her to start celebrating her freedom. I want to just think about Lot's wife just for a second, if I can. Uh, whether they are or not, I mean, probably not. But I just there's some pictures there of what um, people have suggested are Lot's wife. This is down in the Dead Sea area of Israel, not far from where Sodom and Gomorrah would have been before they were destroyed. Uh, and the center one is the the one that a lot of people attribute to. It's referred to as Lot's wife. It's just a kind of tall block of rock. Um, there's another one that's there. Sometimes people refer to that and say they think that was Lot's wife, where she was turned to to salt to, to stone, effectively. You know, just a couple of comments. You know, she died free from the world in an external sense. She'd been delivered from Sodom and Gomorrah. She'd been brought out of Sodom and Gomorrah, but she was looking over her shoulder. She wanted, She there was still that kind of bitter envy that James speaks about, looking back to the things of the world. Again, you know, it was more than just her heart that got effectively turned to stone. And the problem is for us, if we start looking over our shoulder at those things in the world, if there's that bitter envying, if we allow that direction of flow from the world to carry on into our lives, well, it's eventually going to bring to a place where, as the writer of the Hebrews tells us, we can get to the dangerous position of losing the gift of repentance. But as Paul speaks about, that it can actually, we, our hearts can be seared. Uh, we can become numb. We can become to a point where we don't feel the same way about sin in a particular regard in our lives. It's such a dangerous place to be. And James then brings us to, to the end of this chapter. And he says this, this wisdom descends not from above, but is earthly, is sensual, is devilish. Again, get the direction of flow here. Okay. It's the flow of worldly wisdom into our lives. And it says for where envying and strife is, there is confusion and every evil work right as we say it's a confusing place if you've got flows coming from both directions you 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 get the position that james says you shouldn't have where you've got fresh water and, and bitter water coming from the same stream you know if we have an internal battle envying the things of the flesh we know that we shouldn't have there is confusion and it becomes a nurture bed for all evil. That's what James is saying. Once we allow the devil to have a foothold in our lives, well, then it will cause all sorts of other issues and problems for us as well. And it is a horrible place of confusion. But there's no need as a believer to be in that place. Again, that challenge goes out. Who is on the Lord's side? That's what Moses said. The Levites, the priests, we're called to be a kingdom of priests. That's where we should be saying, yes, Lord, we want to be on your side. We don't want to take that flow, that thing that seems from the world. So the question is then, are you ready to take his hand as he leads you out of Sodom? Because, again, remember that Lot's wife had been delivered. She'd been set free from Sodom and Gomorrah. In, in a sense, I, you know, from an analogous point of view, we say she'd been saved. But because she didn't look to the Lord, she was looking back. Well, she lost everything. Now, James concludes this. Again, uh, the wisdom that is from above. Now, this is the, the other side is first pure, then peaceable, 
gentle, gentle and easy to be entreated, full of mercy and good fruits, without partiality, without hypocrisy. All right, before we go on to verse 18, let me just comment that really this is speaking of the way that we should be. If our, if the flow into our heart and mind is from godly things, the wisdom that's from above, that's what's coming into our life, it's going to produce all of these things in us. You know, it's peaceable. We'll have peace. We won't need to, to try and prove ourselves. We won't have to try and justify ourselves. We won't need to throw in the odd flippant comment here just to try and put someone else down and make ourselves look better. It's gentle. You know, uh, other things that we say to others could be classified as being gentle. Easy to be entreated, full of mercy. Do we show mercy to others? We want to receive it ourselves, but... And good fruits, without partiality. Not Again, James has already spoken a little bit about that whole partiality thing, that we should, as believers, not be partial. We should have this, this same attitude towards all. Without hypocrisy. Again, not that double standard we spoke about earlier. And the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace of them that make peace. Let me read that again. The fruit of righteousness, because we talk about, in a sense, the soil of our hearts here. Well, when we are, when the flow is coming from God, that fruit is sown in our hearts. Very much like the, the four soils that Jesus spoke of. You know, that, that seed is sown. What is it going to produce? Are we going to allow the things of this world to choke out the things of God? But if that fruit of righteousness really is sown, it's sown in peace of them that make peace. And one final comment. Speaking of peace, the Hebrew word, as I'm sure you're familiar, is the word shalom. The root for shalom comes from another Hebrew word, or the Hebrew word la shalem. And that has three connotations. It means to pay, or to fill, or to fulfill. That's the idea behind la shalem. It's where the word peace comes from. Now, we have peace because jesus paid the price he fulfilled the law and he filled us with his holy spirit and that is the difference that enables us to do what in the natural is impossible but with god all things are possible and our tongues can be tamed can be controlled if the flow is coming from god and that peaceable fruit of righteousness is produced in us Let's bow our hearts. Father, we just thank you for this time this morning. Please help us to really take these things on board because that every one of us, Lord, myself definitely needs that grace from you that I watch what I say and how I say things. Lord, we all need to be so careful. Lord, we don't tend to realize how dangerous our tongues can be. And so, Lord, we pray that you would take complete control of our tongues. The Lord, your spirit would do that great work in us and produce the fruit that we've just been speaking of. And it would all be to your glory and that we would be a great witness in this world. The Lord, that the world would see that we have nothing to prove, that we're not going to be looking over our shoulder because, Lord Jesus, we're looking unto you, the author and the finisher of our faith. And we ask all these things this morning in Jesus' precious name. Amen.